This is episode number eight of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Ben Lesh, and he's a senior software engineer at the popular movie streaming company, Netflix. In this episode, we're going to talk about a project that Ben works on called RxJS and what it aims to solve in the area of developing reactive and asynchronous JavaScript applications. RxJS is actually heavily used by Netflix. It's also used in the popular Angular 2 framework. Some of you may have heard of RxJava or Rx.net. There's actually a lot of similarities shared between those two and RxJS. If you want to follow Ben, he can actually be found on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Ben Lesh. Uh, or if you want to follow me, of course, uh, my name is Nick Raboy, and my Twitter handle is at nraboy. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I'm with Ben Lesh, who works uh, on RxJS. Uh, a core JavaScript library for uh, reactive programming. Uh, but before we get into what all of this is about, I want to give Ben a chance to introduce himself. Oh, hey, uh, my name is Ben Lesh. I am a senior uh, software engineer at Netflix on the UI platform team. And I am also the lead developer for RxJS 5, which is a rewrite of RxJS. So uh, what, what exactly do you do over at Netflix other than uh, RxJS? Is this your only um, project? Uh, well, no, I actually, so I was hired at Netflix to work on data visualization tools that uh, visualize uh, real-time streaming data from the Netflix cloud. So you can imagine, you know, uh, millions of users and millions of devices and all the events that happen uh, from those things, uh, all streaming in and being graphed and charted and stuff and updating in real time in a web browser. So were you one of the original developers of RxJS? Uh, no, no. Actually, the the original author is Matt Padwasecki. So he uh, works at Microsoft. And the my understanding, the, the lore of this is that Microsoft had this project called Project Volta, which was an attempt to take C-sharp code and uh, compile it to JavaScript. And in order to do that, they had to take uh, all of the libraries for C-sharp and uh, kind of create compilation targets for, for those things. And one of the libraries that was very popular in C-sharp was rx.net. And so they made rxjs, which was basically a straight port of rx.net. Sure, that's, that sounds good. So we'll, we'll get into the rxjs stuff uh, soon. Um, so do you only develop with JavaScript over at Netflix or do you use other technologies over there as well? Uh, I personally have only really dealt with JavaScript since I've been here. Um, I was a .NET developer in the past and I've used Golang and a few other languages, but at, at Netflix, I'm mostly JavaScript. So if you were a .NET developer, does that mean that you did use Rx.net like you mentioned? No, I actually, had, I actually didn't really. I, I, I think I played around with it a little bit, but uh, never really got into it. So um, it might be best to first talk about what RxJS is, uh, because I know a lot of the listeners on this podcast, this, they may have seen it used as maybe an include to, to some popular projects, but they may not know exactly what it does. So maybe you can uh, shed some light on that. Okay, well, the, the name Rx uh, is for reactive extensions. JS is obviously JavaScript, but... 
uh, reactive extensions. Uh, the real way to look at it is uh, it's, it's like a reactive programming library. So it's all built around observables. And observables are a type that pushes values at you over time. So you can think of them as like a set of values uh, over time. And those, the, the structure of that means that you're enabled, you're enabled to have these different combinators that you can use. Like you can map on that because you can map over a set of things or you can merge two sets of things together or filter them or, or whatever. And, uh, and you're doing this reactively because it's, it's very event-driven. It's, it fires these events that push values at you, and you can trigger a chain of, of uh, reactions uh, through these combinators to those events uh, to, and, and manipulate those values to, to some outcome. So that's, that's basically what it is, is, is uh, having a, a, a type that represents values over time and then being able to operate on that type. So are we saying that reactive programming is event-based programming, or are they two different things? Uh, I mean, event-driven programming and, and reactive programming are definitely related, but I would say that reactive programming is, well, push-based reactive programming is a subset of that. There's, there's also pull-based reactive programming, too, where you might get, uh, there's types like uh, Ember's, Ember has this where uh, they're computed properties. So it'll, notif it'll get notified that something has changed, but it won't actually go through and calculate values until it tries to pull the value. So from the bottom up, where uh, RxJS is, every time it's notified it has a new value, it pushes that value all the way down through each step in, in its uh, chain and, and uh, maps and filters and whatever and, until you get to the result. So can you tell me like a story on um, a scenario where, uh, let's say, RxJS uh, would would really shine? So so what would be an, uh, a great example? Oh, uh, so RxJS really shines anytime you have events that you need to coordinate. Uh, so like if, if you're just talking like a button click, like you click a button and it does something, that's not really a use case for RxJS. Like RxJS is better for say like a drag and drop, for example, where you have to coordinate a lot of different things. There's like a mouse down, and then after the mouse down, you want to listen to mouse movements, but you don't want to listen to mouse movements before the mouse down. And then you want to listen to one mouse up after that mouse down that ends the listening to the mouse movement. So there's, you know, there's a lot of coordination in there. Uh, so that's, that's a good use case for RxJS. Or if you're doing something like uh, throttling on events where you say, Oh, you know, someone's clicking a button over and over, but I don't want to spam my server every time it clicks, they click the button. So I want to, I want to have this, you know, one second delay or a half second delay that says, don't send anything unless there's been at least a half second since the last button click. Like that's a really, uh, that's a really powerful use case for RxJS. Um, also, if there's something you might need to cancel, say Ajax requests where you want to cancel. Uh, the requests uh, actually abort the XHR so you don't have to um, worry about like executing code you didn't want to, say in a resource-constrained device, which we have to deal with here at Netflix. It's, in, it's, a, it's a good use case for RxJS because RxJS has uh, cancellation uh, baked in where like promises don't. So those are, those are all really good use cases. Any sort of streaming data, like streaming over a web socket or long polling or polling, that, that sort of stuff is also a really good use case. So just to be clear, because you did give two examples of stuff that deals with uh, interaction of, say, UI and stuff, um, RxJS works across the board, not just, not just the kind of uh, 
manual user kind of interaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can, you could use RX to write a web server if you wanted in node. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very low level. It's very low level. Like you can think of an observable in RxJS as basically a function that takes three callbacks. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, that's that's what it is. It's got a callback for when you get the next value, one for when you get an error, and one for everything's completed. And then it returns to you some sort of cancellation, which in Rx's case is a, a subscription. So it's very, very uh, basic in it's like roots and it's foundations of what it does, but all of the combinators that come with RxJS is where it gets more advanced. So you, I, I just heard you mention Node. Does it only work for for backend server side applications, or does it? Uh, I I want to say probably it works for front end as well, right? Because of the user clicking and, and stuff. Oh no, yeah, it's it's uh, most of the work I've done has been front end, uh, but it, you, it, it works front end or back end. It's it's very big. I mean, it's just like a. It's like a promise. You can use a promise on Node. You could use a promise on uh, the web browser, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's got brought anywhere that you can use JavaScript. You could use RxJS. Really, it, it's it's just a, an ab- a abstraction layer for async. Sure. So you mentioned that it can do stuff that promises can't. Yes. Uh, correct. So can you can you give me a more better example? Because I know a lot of my listeners probably use uh, promises or callbacks um, more often than not. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. So promises, uh, in a nutshell, are they're a single, they're read-only view to a single feature value. So there's a few, there's a few things to know about promises. Promises can't be canceled. Uh, promises are not lazy. They they execute immediately. So as soon as you create a promise, whatever is going to produce the value that that promise is eventually going to return is already underway. Uh, and promises don't give you a mechanism to cancel. Uh, that underlying that producer is is what uh, it, that's generally called the the thing that's producing the value that the promise is wrapping. Um, there's no way to that with the promise to cancel that sort of thing. Uh, promises multicast, which means that everybody that looks at the promise is looking at the same incoming value, uh, and this is a byproduct of it not being lazy. So that means promises can't be retried. If, you, if, if I hand you a promise to some future value and it fails, there's nothing you can do with that promise to retry getting the, that data again. You would have to call whatever function it was that, that you got the promise from uh, over again in order to do that. So the, where observables, um, instead of handling just one value, they handle zero to n values. So they can handle, handle any number of values. Uh, and they also have a cancellation semantic. Um, so like when you subscribe to an obser- observable, it gives you back this subscription that you can call unsubscribe on to kill uh, the producer underneath that. So if it's an XHR, it'll, it'll abort. Or you know, if it's a WebSocket, you can close it and that sort of thing. Um, the, the, the other thing that's, that's different about observables is they're lazy. So... You can compose this observable chain together where you say observable, you know, filter, map, flat map, and so on, like have this whole long thing, and it doesn't do anything. You can hand that to anyone you want, and when they subscribe, that's when it actually sets up the producer and everything under the hood. So um, observables in that regard become much much more flexible. So, Because like I said, at the end of the day, an observable is really just a function that takes like an observer, which is three callbacks and returns a function that allows you to, to cancel what's happening underneath that. And, uh, you know, a promise is 
a little bit heavier than that when it comes to that because it's got more expectations. It it assumes multicast. It you know it it traps errors and that sort of thing. Um, there's some actually actually with promises, and I'm sorry if I'm rambling on about this, but uh, with with promises, uh, since promises are not lazy, and they use then for everything, they use then for mapping, they use then for flattening, uh, which is like taking a a value out of uh, well. Really, it, it lifts more than it flattens. It takes a value and automatically wraps it in a promise and sends it to the next then. Uh, then you can't really tell when the end of your then chain is. So it has to trap every error. And there's no way to, for it to know that it can rethrow that. Whereas with an observable, since it's lazy and it doesn't do anything until you call subscribe, that subscribe step is clearly the last in the chain. So you know that if it makes it to subscribe and it doesn't handle an error, you can rethrow the error, for example. So there, there's, a, there's a wide variety of, of differences between the two. So, so just so I'm clear, uh, so, so uh, does this mean that none of the um, observable goes down the line uh, as far as maps or flat maps and stuff until you call subscribe, so it doesn't actually start running until you sub- call subscribe? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Got it. Um, so... Often, um, I find this myself, um, and I know a lot of other developers do as well, but when you're working with JavaScript, you end up uh, in a lot of, say, promise hell or callback hell, uh, where you just have nested callbacks and, and promises for forever. Uh, does RxJS help kind of eliminate this issue? Uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, so it, it helps you in the regards that Generally speaking, if you're composing a lot of events, it's much easier to and, and more concise to to do that in a highly expressive, uh, basically domain specific language like RX. However, you can end up like having RX hell too, where you know if you're not familiar with RX, you end up looking at this block of like seven lines of RX that you know, does what 20 lines of code before it used to do, or, or maybe 40 even, but it's, uh, you know, since it's a do- domain-specific language, it's hard for some people to read, or, you know, maybe there's a little bit too much nesting or, and that sort of thing. So you, you can end up having similar problems with it. I would never claim it's a silver bullet for that sort of problem. I think the, that sort of problem is just going to exist as long as we're programmers, but it, it certainly can help because it, at the very least, if you understand this this uh domain specific language that is rx if you understand all the options uh it it becomes easier to read uh and uh it's definitely more concise like there'll be less code usually for you to deal with sure so uh with with angular 2 coming out and and all of the the things that it's bringing with it like typescript which has obviously been around a lot longer than angular 2 um but it's it's rising in popularity does RxJS support TypeScript? Is there any type definitions available for it? Oh yeah, RxJS five is it was written in TypeScript, so no. that was that was actually a sell for me. Like I was not I liked ES six. I wasn't super keen on TypeScript, but early on I decided to port it over to TypeScript because um, any of the Angular folks were keen on being um, on using uh, the version of RxJS that I was working on, and. Uh, I wanted to make sure that um, I was outputting all the right type definitions and stuff. And actually, the the getting the type definitions right for RxJS five has been very challenging. And there's 
still some ways in which the TypeScript type system doesn't really handle exactly everything you can do with RxJS. Uh, for example, technically all the operators off of a subject return a subject, but there's no higher kinded typing, so we can't really like infer like all of the the type information uh, off of those things. So it's I don't know. It's 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 interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. Sounds but, like it. Yeah. So that that kind of raises two questions for me. So first of all, it, you're you're talking about RxJS five uh, being rewritten. Is it is it already out? Is it in beta? Is it what's going on with it? Yeah. So right now it's beta eleven. The next release is going to be a release candidate uh, one. So really, it hasn't changed much since like probably beta five or six. Um, it's just been bug fixes and you know a few very minor breaking changes. Uh, it probably could have been a release candidate uh, two or three releases ago. Um, but there was a few things I wasn't quite sure about that I, I thought were breaking changes. But uh, So since I've moved to the UI platform team here at Netflix, I have uh, a lot more time to work on uh, RxJS because it's, it's more of a mandate now that I work on it. Uh, so that's enabled me to go back and revisit some of those issues I thought might be blockers for a release. And um, kind of like narrow that down to to just a, a couple of, of smaller issues. So yeah, the release candidate is very soon. Uh, I'm the 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 uh, Angular. I'll put it this way: the Angular two folks are comfortable enough, uh, having worked with me and working with RxJS, that they're in release candidate, uh, even though they have a beta dependency. So. Really, I could have called it a release candidate a while ago, but the release is coming soon, um, and uh, definitely the next re- the next release that I have is going to be release candidate one. So, so that that raises my second question. So I know that I develop a lot with Angular two, uh, the release candidate, and I notice that sometimes when I'm working with the HTTP component, there is that necessary dependency of RxJS. Is that is that kind of where RxJS fits in Angular two, or does it fit elsewhere that maybe people don't see under the covers? It it, it does fit elsewhere. They're using uh, Rx observables for uh, their forms library, I think, for validation. Uh, Victor Savkin worked on some of that stuff. Uh, they've got first class support for it with their pipe async, um, like their I don't know if they're, they're calling it filter still, but they're they've got this pipe async that you can use to basically bind out an observable directly to their templates. Um, so yeah, they've, they've really embraced it. They've been, uh, they've been awesome with their support of, of RxJS five. Uh, and I'm really super happy that I'm, I get to work with those guys. So it, it plays a very heavy role then in Angular two. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, like I said, it's their only dependency. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely is, uh, something that they're, they're hedging their bets on. And I, I, th- I think it's a, it's a good idea. I mean, uh, Angular one really embraced promises, right? Um, but you know, it, it, there's, when you've got a single page application, it's, which Angular has always been designed to do, um, promises don't really fit the bill well, because think of it this way. Like if you're, if you're going from view to view, when you hit a view, you generally load some data like asynchronously right to back your view and when you do that uh if you're using a promise like you're firing this off now let's say you navigate to a view it fires off like i am going to load this data and it load the data loads kind of slow over the wire 
And then the user decides, man, eh, no, I want to go to this other view, and they back out of it. That 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 AJAX request, if it's promise wrapped, is just going to keep going, and eventually it's going to execute some logic, and the uh, programmer ends up having to put some sort of guard in there that says, oh well, you know, if if you know if this thing isn't true, then don't you know execute this extra logic down here that's going to process this data when it comes back. The problem being that you still have gotten the data back and parsed the JSON in it and probably done a couple other things by the time you get to that part of your promise, right? Uh, where with Rx, you would abort it and the XHR wouldn't even handle the request coming back. So it wouldn't attempt to parse any JSON or anything like that. It would just, it would just let it die. So um, it, that's much better resource-wise for your single-page applications. And then that's just one one basic example of, of where, you know, Rx or, or a, a reactive library like Rx uh, is a little better fit for a single page application. No, that was a good example. It really put it in per- perspective um, on, on how it's being used and how it benefits over promises. Um, so I, although I didn't record this, uh, you saw me when, when we first hopped on the call, I mentioned Rx Java uh, because I actually use Rx Java quite a bit. So are the two similar in the way that you compose things? RxJava and RxJS? Yeah, yeah it, it is very similar. RxJava has a lot more abstraction in it, uh, though. So interesting fact, uh, the person or one of the people, one of the, the three people that asked me to work on RxJS to begin with is Ben Christensen, who uh, for a while was, was uh, a figurehead in the RxJava community. I think still is, uh, although I don't know how active he, he still is in RxJava. And then uh, folks like Aaron Tull and uh, George Campbell uh, s- sat with me or on the same team with me uh, where, where I was in edge engineering uh, up until recently here at Netflix. So um, the RX Java developers, I worked very closely with them because I literally worked very closely with them. Uh, and so there are aspects of RxJS that are derived from RX Java, but a lot of it is derived from the previous version of RxJS as well. So um, you, you mentioned a lot about this complete rewrite of, of RxJS 5. Um, what kind of provoked this rewrite? Um, is there some things that were like really poorly coded in the previous version? Was there things that really have changed with JavaScript as a language? Oh, you know what? There, there was nothing poorly coded in the previous version. Uh, Matt Padoseki is a, a brilliant guy. The, the code there is totally solid. Uh, Netflix has needs around performance. Actually, some pretty crazy needs around performance. We've got devices that are like smart TVs and Roku's and things like that that are uh, really resource constrained. So imagine taking your you know old desktop, like your Compaq from 1998, and uh, you know running a non jitted uh, runtime JavaScript app on that. Like it's it's like 600 megahertz. Uh, you know really small L1 cache, very, you know, single core uh, type environment with a non-jitted runtime, no less. So it's, you're not getting a lot of, any, a lot of optimization, if, if any optimization. And um, with, with those sorts of constraints, uh, performance is very, very uh, important. And we weren't getting the performance that we wanted out of older versions of RxJS. And a lot of that was just uh, because of how it was architected. And there was nothing wrong with how it was arch- architected. It was more just that it was, it was hard to optimize, right? So the, one of the things was to go through and rewrite it in a more optimized way, like eliminating closures and all these other like really 
refined optimizations to try to make things as quick as we can. And then um, the other thing was uh, Jaffer Hussein, who works on my team here in UI platform at Netflix. He's on the TC39, and he's one of the champions of the observable spec. Which So observables, uh, just like RxJS 5 observables, are uh, likely to end up in JavaScript proper. Uh, so uh, we wanted a version of RxJS that was forward-looking uh, in that it had the same shape as the proposed observable for um, the TC39 spec or proposal. So th those are the two real driving goals. Um, there's also a focus on modularity, like everything's more modular, which means that if you're using a bundler and you only include the operators that you want or you only import the operators that you, you use, uh, you will get a smaller package size out of your bundle um, than you would with older versions of Rx where you just have to include like you know, a large number of them at a time or like all of them, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. So it's, those are, those are the big focuses. Mostly it was Netflix driven. Like Netflix had some needs uh, around performance is the biggest driver for sure. No, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, so you, you've done a pretty good job selling me on, on why, uh, what some of the benefits are, but as somebody who's used to the promises and callback scenario, what kind of learning curve is there for somebody who wants to get into RxJS uh, from coming from those? Yeah, so you know, here's here's the part where I tell you the 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 things that um, I mean, you get a lot of people that have come through and be like, "My library is great. You should use my library for everything. It's awesome." There's uh, there are some foot guns laying around with RxJS. There's a learning curve. Uh, it's different. Um, the learning curve is tricky in that there are 60 some odd operators. And so people get very overwhelmed with like how many, what, what operator do I use for this? What's the right operator? Um, really there's about eight to maybe 12 or so that you would use a lot. And the other ones you won't use very often. Like you end up having to look them up. Sometimes I end up having to look up which one I want to use or because I can't remember the order of the arguments or something, but, um, yeah, it's so that's one side of it. The other thing that's interesting is observables can be either synchronous or asynchronous because, like I said, they're just a function that takes three callbacks. And what can you do inside of that? I mean, anything. Where promises are always um, promises are. Excuse me. Sorry. Sorry. It's all right. Got a little loud here. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna move. Promises are are always asynchronous. So. Uh, you don't end up having to um, worry about that sort of thing. So there, the, you don't have these weird concurrency bugs that you might see where you execute something and then you call it, and then you get a promise and do something in a then block right underneath it, and then you execute yeah. something right after. You're guaranteed that all those things are always going to happen in the same order, where that's not true with, with Rx. So um, th there, are some, there is a bit of a learning curve around that. So when you say operators, do you mean stuff like flat map and uh, blocking and filter and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So map, flat map, th those things where you would, there's methods on an, on a, an observable that you would call to uh, manipulate an observable, you know, the values that come through an observable and return a new observable. So sure. basically you operate an observable and it gives you a new observable every time. So what are the best places uh, people can get help when it comes to learning RxJS? Is it is the GitHub page the best place, or is there an official documentation somewhere, or maybe tutorials? Uh, we've got we've got official docs out on uh, reactivexi.io uh, slash rxjs, and then 
there are really great resources on there's like there's a lot of resources on Egghead.io. Um, I am an instructor there. I only have like maybe seven videos, but the only reason I have only seven videos is they have so much other content on there that's RxJS. I don't even know what else I would contribute. Um, a good chunk of those are free. Uh, there are other things like RxBook. Uh, I saw that Sindra uh, Source, uh, I, I can never say his, his name. He actually has um, uh, a collection of like ReactiveX links. Um, so Re- reactive programming links that are pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say that Egghead or the um, or the official docs are probably the best places to go at the moment. So if people go to Egghead uh, and they want to watch one of your videos, do you still go by Ben Lesh on that side, or do you go by some other alias? Oh no, I'm I'm uh, I'm Ben Lesh. Sometimes I go by Kent C. Dodds, but <laughs> all right, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a different guy. Um, yeah, no, no, it's not. I'm the same guy. Oh yeah, you're the same guy. Yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that could be true. <laughs> so um is there any last minute words of wisdom that you want to you want to give people uh maybe some common questions that you receive or some things that you see people doing that maybe aren't correct or that they no, could be no, doing better I, I think that um you know for people that are beginners they're just starting out try not to freak out like if you have to just subscribe and use an observable just like you would a promise where you subscribe and you do a bunch of imperative stuff in the callbacks inside of subscribe that's great Uh, just make sure that you capture your subscription and unsubscribe from it later so you tear down all the producers underneath that that could be you know dom events or other things and you memory leaks Uh, i think for more advanced users i would recommend that they uh you know, try to limit the number of subscriptions that they're keeping around. If you see more than one or two in a component, you might be doing something wrong. I uh, probably want to look into uh, the take until operator. Uh, so it's, this is for my advanced people. Like if, if you have three different ways that you want to be able to kill an observable stream, it's probably just to better to make an observable of events that say kill this and then pass that to a take until. Uh, because it's it's much more powerful and you can compose it very easily and you don't have to worry about imperatively managing, you know, three or four different subscriptions that way. So that's oh. it. That's my advice. <laughs> oh, well, that's good advice. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be on this podcast episode. I'm sure my listeners will get a lot out of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that you invited me. This is This is great. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully that sheds some light on RxJS and how you can use it in not only back-end applications with like Node.js, but also front-end applications. So maybe you're using Angular 2, which is a heavy user of RxJS as well. If you're interested in following Ben on Twitter, again, his Twitter is at Ben Lesh. Uh, he's, a, he's a really good guy and he provides a lot of useful information and you'll definitely get a lot out of following him and seeing what he writes and does if you're listening to this episode from itunes or another podcasting network that allows for reviews it would mean a lot to me if you went in and left it a five-star rating and then left a review that said something nice about the podcast itself Uh, the reason why i ask is because there are plenty of developers out there that would probably find the material on this podcast not just this episode but the podcast in general very useful and I definitely want it to appear higher in the search so that way they have the opportunity to listen to it. Again, this is free. Um, I don't charge for it. 
So it, it's definitely a good opportunity for people. If you operate a business that focuses on web, mobile, or game development, I do have sponsorship opportunities available. So if you go to the polyglotdeveloper.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a link that says become a sponsor. Using that link, you can contact me and say that you're interested. And that concludes episode number eight.